Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host Josiah Meyer and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And um, things are calmed down a wee tiny bit with my with our little baby and so that gives us gives me a bit of time to uh, do some more podcasts or at least one more. We'll take it one day at a time. Um, I'm up early again and have a bit of time here with my notes in front of me so We'll see how this goes. Um, in the last podcast, I had mentioned Descartes. That was the point of the podcast, was to, to do a survey of Descartes, but I ended up doing kind of an overview of modern thought. Um, so let's back up and do Descartes. Now, I forget a little bit what I talked about with Descartes because I, I did that podcast a while ago, and well, a week ago, and uh, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then with with our little man here um, and uh, so I'm just going to end up repeating a fair bit of what I said and in in the um, in so doing this will become kind of a standalone podcast on Descartes uh, which is helpful in its own way so Descartes is from the 1600s um, and he's often called the father of modern philosophy uh, it's worth noting that he was a brilliant mathematician we still talk about our Cartesian plane. Um, he brought together two fields of, of math. Um, I forget which ones. I'm not a mathematician of any, in any way, shape, or form. Um, but he he revolutionized uh, at least uh, one field of math, and um, really what came from. Uh, he had the best that Europe had to offer at the time, which was significant. Um, in education, and he was a very well-educated man, very smart, and Wilhelmsen makes the point that um, he he errs as a brilliant man would err. Uh, a common man would not make the sort of blunder that he made because um, because he's not brilliant. Uh, and Descartes, he was wrong, but he was wrong brilliantly, if I can say. I just mentioned Wilhelmsen. Um, the main book that I'm studying in my class um, on epistemology from uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary is by Frederick D. Wilhelmsen, or Wilhelmsen probably, called Man's Knowledge of Reality, an Introduction to Thomistic Epistemology. Epistemology, by the way, is the study of how we know things. Uh, ontology is the study of what we know, and epistemology is how we come to know, which is, um, you know, in its own right, a very important subject. And it's basically um, the the main emphasis of Descartes is how do we come to know things, and this is what he was trying to establish and figure out. So before Descartes. Um, that, well, there were a lot of things in the water. Um, it, Descartes comes just right, right after the Reformation. Um, also, after the Renaissance, and during the Renaissance period, it was really uh, Thomas Aquinas and, um, and Aristotelian ideas that took the forefront. Um, but the West kind of uh, turned away from these, um, to some degree. To some degree, they had turned away from Thomas Aquinas, and to some degree, it had just become very, very complicated. And so Descartes felt as though uh, philosophy at his day um, 
was just posing a lot of making a lot of hair splitting distinctions um, they didn't have a lot of certain knowledge it was kind of um, probabilities of what might be true um, and uh, he wanted to find a solid firm foundation and as I mentioned he was a mathematician and he he wanted to have that sort of a certainty in philosophy in math everybody agrees um, that 2 plus 2 equals 4 in philosophy uh, there was no real agreement it was just probabilities and so he wanted to find some sort of a sure foundation for philosophy and he also seems to have wanted to uh, cut off um, skepticism uh, and to avoid the dangers of relativism postmodernity or you know not postmodernity but just this skeptical idea that we can't know anything um, so he begins by doubting everything sorry I should say he begins and Wilhelmsen said it's really on page 9 that it's really important to look at what his initial assumptions are and Descartes says that um, there is nothing so equally distributed as common sense that everybody has a certain amount of common sense to them and he defines common sense as intuition intuition and deduction but there's certain things you just know intuitively are true such as mathematical principles or right and wrong um, and then there's deduction that you can know um, 2 plus 2 equals 4 um, there's two apples there there's two apples there therefore there's four apples the basic rules of deduction um, or the basic ability to deduce to to put concepts together is also common to man um, and so so he begins with with this assumption that there's ideas within us that are true uh, and everybody has them whether they're intelligent or not educated or not uh, and no matter what language they speak but his main problem that he sees is what do we do with error and this is um, this is what's going to drive Descartes to uh, create his system um, what what about um, the errors the problems with my especially my sense perception uh, how do I know that what I'm seeing in the world is true and so he goes through a three-stage process of um, of questioning and doubting his uh, his perception of the world and uh, he uses the analogy of a barrel of apples and he says how, how would I know um, that all these apples are good well the only way to really know that all the apples in this barrel are good is to take them all out and only put in the good apples so this is what he's trying to do with human knowledge he wants to take out the things that um, that are, he wants to doubt everything that he's not 100% sure is true uh, so that he can start from ground zero and build up only with things he knows are true and the big problem he has with sense perception with his perception of the external world is um, that so often his he thinks he knows something about the external world about a tree or a rock or about his friend um, but it turns out that he was wrong on that so he says first of all sometimes um, 
I'm having an experience and then I wake up and I realize it was just a dream. And so what do I do about, how do I know I'm not in a dream right now? And uh, his basic answer to that question is, well, I know what a dream is because I know what a waking state is. And so there's a difference between dreams and being awake. Well, what about, um, what about mirages or sensory perceptions such as, use the analogy of you put a stick in water and it seems to bend. So there again, my senses deceive me. How can I trust my senses? How do I know that all my senses aren't deceiving me? Uh, and this is a very insightful um, question. Now that we know more about senses, that means senses are basically um, physical um, stimuli, whether it's light or pressure or uh, some sort of chemical on the tongue or in the nose that all gets translated to electrical stimuli and then fed into this, you know, two and a half, two and a half pound lump in our head called our brain. And really, if you uh, and scientists are getting better and better at this, if you were able to uh, interfere with those electrical stimuli, introduce other stimuli, um, you could convince your brain that you're experiencing theoretically anything. Um, now, I, I'm not exactly sure what he says about the stick in the water. He may say, I think he says something like, well, when you take the stick out of the water, then you can see uh, that it's not. So um, more sensory data usually clears up any uh, mistakes in um, in sense per perception but then he cranks it to um, to 11 he goes to his his most skeptical phase of saying well what if there's an evil demon out there that's just trying to deceive me um, what if basically he's saying what if God instead of being good was evil and God being omni omniscient and omnipotent having absolute power, certainly absolute power over me, what if he were able to completely deceive me and uh, make me convinced that everything that I'm experiencing is a lie? And this, um, you know, if you've ever watched the movie The Matrix, uh, you'll be well on your way to understanding what he is talking about. How do we know that we're not just in The Matrix and nobody wakes up? How do we know, as I mentioned, you know, uh, all that we experience in the world uh, comes to our brain through sensory perception. So how do we know that's not a lie? How do we know we're not being deceived? And um, if you go down this path of, of doubt, um, doubting everything, you can get to some pretty weird places. I don't know if uh, anybody remembers watching The Matrix for the first time. Um, it's already kind of an old movie. But, uh, you know, I washed it and it was late in the evening and went for a drive. And I was like, whoa, man, that's trippy. Like, how would I know if you were really being deceived uh, about everything, either by some demon spiritual influence or uh, by some aliens or some really demented and very, um, very, very skilled scientist? How would you know? I mean, you might think, well, I could ask somebody on the street, but they're all just automations. You know, the woman in the red dress, like in the Matrix. Um, well, I, I would just 
think about my memories of, of other times. Well, those memories are all a lie. Well, I would read a book. Well, all the books are lies. Well, I would Google it. Well, Google is a lie. You know, and you can just go on and on and on. Well, you know, I could, I could, um, this just doesn't feel right. I could use my emotions or, or um, my intuition for what is true. Well, that's a lie too, because that's all based on your sensory perception, which are all a lie. So when it really comes down to it, um, it from, from Descartes' perspective, you can doubt just absolutely everything. And this is what um, Wilhelmsen will call hyperbolic doubt. Um, and I, I don't think that term is original to him. Uh, some would call it Cartesian doubt or, uh, or the critical method. Um, not the critical method, that's um, an application of this to other things. But um, this is where Descartes starts, that basically I can just doubt anything. Um, it's significant uh, that there's a, a kind of a myth about how he started all this and how he wrote it, that uh, likely he, um, he was snowed in to a certain place. This was back, um, you know, when it was horse travel and there was a lot of snow in a certain area, so he was stuck there as he was traveling, so he had some time to kill. And so he started writing things out. Um, but first, what he would do is he would lock himself into a Dutch oven, um, kind of a large oven, <laughs> um, climbed in, closed the door, completely dark, completely quiet, um, kind of a, a primitive sense deprivation technique. And he said, how can I actually know there is anything? You know, he's asking himself these really deep, profound questions. Um, and as you think more about what he ended up writing, uh, it's really easy to imagine somebody sitting in the dark all by themselves coming up with these ideas and doubting everything. Um, and it's, it's significant um, that, um, how can I say this? So hyperbolic doubt, he's, he, he's doubting more than is really reasonable. Uh, hyperbole means um, overstating your case uh, for effect, such as, what's um, a good hyperbole? Um, I'm freezing to death. Well, you're not really freezing to death. That's hyperbole. Um, well, I'm doubting everything. Well, you're not really doubting everything unless you're having, you know, some sort of a trip on drugs or you're something, you know, you're really deep into philosophy and, and having some sort of a, a mental break. Um, most people don't really doubt everything. They don't really think that they're in the matrix. Um, and so, uh, and Descartes himself likely didn't actually think um, that everything was a lie. But what he was trying to do is he's trying to get to what can I know absolutely with all certainty? And so that's why he's he's doubting all these things in a hyperbolic way because he wants to dig down to what he can know absolutely for sure um, with certainty. And so what he ends up with is as he's doubting everything, he realizes that the one thing he t can't doubt is that he's a thinking person. Because if he were to doubt himself, he would realize that there's a self-doubting himself, that there's 
he still exists or else he wouldn't be able to think or else he wouldn't be able to exist to doubt himself. And so he says, well, I think, therefore I am. Or some would interpret that as I doubt, therefore I am. Uh, that doubt is, is the fundamental thing of human existence. So um, he begins with this understanding of himself as a thinking person. Um, he can't doubt that he himself exists. Uh, because to do so would be um, self-defeating. So he's got one thing that he absolutely cannot doubt. Uh, sometimes this is called an Archimedean point. Archimedes said, um, uh, give me one... Uh, he was a, a famous mathematician in antiquity. And he said uh, something like, give me one point that does not move, and I can leverage it to move the whole world. Um, and uh, so Descartes was looking for one thing that would not move so that he could understand everything else. And he said, okay, I think therefore I am. That's one thing that's stable, unmoving. So now let's try and understand everything else. So the way that he moves from there is to um, uh, say, well, I have these certain, me as a thinking person, I have certain ideas in my mind. Remember at the beginning I talked about intuition and deduction. So there's certain things I know intuitively to be true. Two plus two, uh, a perfect triangle, perfect square, things like that. Um, and one of these things that I know to be true is perfection itself. Um, I know what imperfection is. I know what perfection is. If I say a perfect triangle, you know what that is. I know what that is. Intuitively, we know what perfection is. Um, and so... If, if perfection exists, and if this is a concept in my mind that I couldn't possibly doubt, then there must be a perfect being. And, if, and this is where you're like, what, really? Um, because just because a triangle exists in my mind, that doesn't mean it has to exist somewhere. But he's saying there has to be a perfect being that, I, that exists because for it not to exist, it would be less than perfect. You following me? Um... This is where a lot of people wouldn't follow Descartes here. But he says, certain, certain concepts exist in my mind. I know them to be intuitively true. Um, and one of them is perfection. And there must be a perfect being. Uh, because to not exist would be less than perfection. And this perfect being is what we commonly refer to as God. Um, he is the greatest pot. The, the being that which no greater thing could be imagined. Um, so perfect in love, perfect in goodness, perfect in in uh, all the attributes that we can imagine. So this is the ontological argument from um, Anselm. Uh, some, uh, I think he was Anselm was in the 11 or 1200s. I forget exactly, uh, but some some centuries before Descartes. And then he says, "All right, so." I know that God exists because of this ontological argument that I've reasoned out for myself. Um, and he sees this as being self-evident. Um, and therefore, God would not, because God is good, he would not deceive me in my sense perception of the world. Therefore, I can believe that the world exists. Um, and so then, from there, he's able to say, well, now I can trust my senses. Um, and I can go on with life knowing that um, I exist, first of all, 
God exists secondly, and thirdly, the world that he created exists. Uh, so I think I mentioned in the previous podcast that um, pretty much all philosophers after Descartes, um, they follow him up to the point where he goes to the ontological argument, and then they just say, no, we're not following you here. Even most, even for a lot of Christians, um, the ontological argument is very difficult. Um, we want it to be true, but it's just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense intuitively to a lot of people. Um, why is it that just because something is perfect, it must exist? Um, this actually gets into uh, a very ancient debate uh, among the followers of Plato. And there's, um, you know, Plato believed that there's this perfect world of the forms, the perfect triangle, the perfect sphere, uh, the form of the good. Uh, perfect justice, and that the world we're in is a pale reflection of the world of the forms, which is why we see imperfect circles and imperfect squares, uh, imperfect justice and imperfect good and beauty. Um, but when we see these things in the real world, it's like an echo of the world of the forms. And there's this debate within Platonism, uh, realism versus anti-realism. Does the do the forms actually exist somewhere? Is there like this heavenly place of perfect triangles and perfect justice? You know, there's just justice floating around somewhere uh, as a perfect form. Uh, and some people would say, yes, there is a world of the forms. They, these things do exist in some way. And even today, it seems like a strange concept. Um, you know, the number two is a form that actually exists somewhere. So even today, there's mathematicians and there's philosophers that believe in this world of the forms and they're realists yeah, in some way. And then there's anti-realists that say the forms don't actually exist. Um, they're just um, at least not in any sort of metaphysical way. Uh, they just exist in the same way that that thoughts exist and, and fictional characters exist. So this to me touches a little bit on the ontological argument that it seems as though Descartes for the ontological, I feel, I still feel like I'm missing something. Like every time I talk about the ontological argument, I'm like, it can't really be that simple, can it? Because it, it just seems so simple and so child, like so childishly foolish, <laughs> if I can say. And yet, some of the greatest geniuses of, of the last couple hundred years have been completely blown away and befuddled by the ontological argument and continue to say that it is a valid argument and one of the strongest arguments there is for the existence of God. And I'm like, I just don't really get it. It just doesn't really seem to make sense. So I might be missing something. But it seems to me that um, the way to make the ontological argument work is you have to be a realist about the forms and say, because these forms exist in my mind, they must actually exist somewhere. There must actually be a world of the forms. So if there is a perfect sphere, there must be a, a, a form of the sphere somewhere. This must actually exist in some sort of a heavenly realm or another dimension that, that parallels ours and influences ours in some way. And so because there is a form of perfection, there must be some sort of something 
that perfectly um, exemplifies perfection. And that thing must be God. And so it's, if I can interpret Descartes in a realist, um, platonic sense, then, I, then it would make sense to me that because this form exists in my mind, it must exist in the real world or in some world. Uh, but otherwise, I just can't make any sense of it. Um, but anyways, most people um, don't follow Descartes in that, but they just follow Descartes in, um, in his skepticism. And then they try and find another solution. So the big problem for Descartes is how do you get from what you know, this thing that I am a thinking person, um, out to the real world of trees and rocks and other people? of sense perception, that we know through sense perception. Um, because we can know with absolute certainty that we exist based, based on Descartes' system here of um, being a thinking person. Uh, but anything else we can still doubt. We can still use his methods. And if all else fails, we can, we can use the evil genius um, or the evil demon um, critique to doubt everything else. So this is known as the critical problem, um, and I talked about that before. That you know you have people like Locke, Kant, Hegel, um, trying to find a way to get from the mind out to the world, and this is continually the problem that philosophers have: is trying to get from the mind out to the world. Um, and this is the project of mo modern philosophy, uh, of Cartesian philosophy, or critical philosophy. Um, or idealism, ideas, idealism, uh, critical philosophy, meaning we're, we're critiquing everything. Um, these are all synonyms for um, philosophy uh, following Descartes. And pretty much everybody operates within the system of beginning with hyperbolic doubt, doubting everything. The one thing we can know is what's inside. Um, so how do we get to the outside world? Um, now, there's a few critiques we would have. And uh, so Wilhelmsen is, we'll talk about him in the next podcast. Um, but he takes a completely different direction. Uh, he's uh, a Thomistic, follows Thomas Aquinas. And he says, no, actually, what we know, we know because it exists in the real world. Um, and so the, the world out there, the rocks, the trees, uh, the other people, that's the real world. The world inside of us is uh, what we need to be skeptical of. We can know to some extent, but we're, um, that's the shadow world. The real world is out there uh, that we access through our senses. And so we'll, we'll workshop that out in the next podcast. Um, but let's critique, uh, well, let's talk about the implications of, of Descartes. So for Descartes, man is basically a thinking soul. Uh, and he says this explicitly, that um, I think, therefore I am. Therefore, man is basically, you know, something that can think. It's, it's a soul um, that exists, that is able to think about itself. Um, it, man is basically a thinking thing. And ideas within are the only reliable truths. Um, now something that um, 
that Wilhelmsen picks up on as a critique of Descartes is that for this to work, um, well, let me mention something else before I forget because it's not in my notes here. Um, one way that people start with Descartes but try to um, get across this gap to deal with the critical problem to understand the world is by um, saying, look, Descartes was great. We do start with a thinking person. Um, but his standard of truth was far too high. And I think this is a good common sense way to deal with Descartes is to say, look, we can't know everything with absolute certainty in the way that he talked about with kind of mathematical certainty. But it's not an either or thing. It's not as though I'm not 100% sure this is a rock. I mean, I could be having a dream. I could be on drugs. Sure, there could be an evil genius, but I'm pretty sure it's a rock. So let's say it's like 98% certainty. That, that's good enough for most things. Um, and so a lot. some people would just say, look, we can know about the world through our senses. We can't be 100% sure, but it's not an all or nothing proposition. Um, and something that uh, I'm not sure if others have developed or not, but it's helpful. Uh, the French language is helpful because in French, uh, there's two words for knowing. In English, you just say, I know something, or knowledge. Uh, that's the only word we have. But in French, you have connaître and savoir. Um, if I can anglify, try and say those words in English, it would be connaître, connaître and savoir. Um, it hurts me to say those words in English, but uh, connaître and savoir. Um, so connaître, I'll just say it in French, connaître is, um, okay, well, savoir is the concept of, like, I know something. Like, I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Um, or uh, I have learned a certain formula in math. Or, um, you know, if there's some body of knowledge that I can master completely, then I would use savoir. But for something like knowing another person, like, do you know him? Oh, yeah, I know him. You wouldn't say savoir because that's like, it would be, a, it feels weird. It's like, did you put him in an x-ray and like, you know, you know how many hairs are on his head? Like, it, you don't savoir another person. You connaître another person. Oh, oui, je le connais you know this person, but like connaître is like this weaker form of, um, of knowledge. Um, but it's weaker, but it doesn't have the sense of uh, an incomplete knowledge. It's a different sort of a knowledge. The way that you know a person is different than the way that you know a mathematical formula. And uh, I think this could be kind of a helpful thing for understanding um, the critical problem that um, we can know the world, not in the same way that we know mathematical formulae, um, but in sort of the same way that you would know another person. There's a certain intuitive knowingness of uh, walking in the world and understanding things. Um, but the Descartes may have been on the wrong track, trying to reduce everything to what we could know in, a, in, in the sense of savoir in a mathematical certainty. So that's one critique um, 
that many people have with Descartes is that this hyperbolic doubt, uh, his level, his bar of certainty was far too high. Uh, and maybe French or a different language that has different words for knowledge could be helpful there. Um, the other critique that Wilhelmsen had is that, um, and this is going to propel us into talking about Wilhelmsen's view, for, um, for Descartes, um, man is a divided thing. There's a soul and there's a body. There's a mind and there's a body. And this is Platonic. This is how Plato saw the human person, that there is a mind, um, which is part of the spiritual world, and then there's a body, which is part of this world down below. Uh, and there's a distinction between the two. The two are made out of different stuff. Uh, and there's really a question, how can the two even talk to one another? Because they're, it's a difference in kind. It's a different sort of a thing. Um, and so, um, Wilhelmsen's critique of Descartes is that uh, he gets in the problems that he does because he sees... Um, he sees the human person as fundamentally divided. When no such division really exists, we don't really have a distinction um, in the normal human existence between our soul and our bodies. That's not how we actually experience our lives. Sure, if we lock ourselves in a Dutch oven or if we have some sort of sensory de deprivation experience or we're on drugs, we might you know, have this sort of experience of thinking about thinking. But for the most part, we think about things and we think thoughts about people and about reality. Now, um, probably the best part of, um, of Wilhelmsen, you know, the best part of his critique, let me see if I can find it here, is this jewel of a chapter on page 27. He says, in order to grasp the point more correctly, concentrate for a moment on the fact that you are here and knowing this piece of paper before your eyes. He's assuming I'm reading a book and not listening to a podcast, but imagine that there's whatever it is in front of you, just focus on it. Uh, imagine that there's a piece of paper or something else before your eyes. The situation involves three elements. One, the piece of paper. Two, being known. Three, by you. Now suppress the first and third elements, that is, the fact that there is a piece of paper and that you, a flesh and blood human being, know the piece of paper. Retain only the act of knowing, without referring that act to the thing known or to you, the subject, exercising the act. Once you have done this, you are in the position of the critical philosopher after he has established the starting point of his critique of knowledge. You are, and what you have known have dropped out of the picture. There remains only pure knowledge or thinking. Knowing or thinking itself to be knowing or thinking. So this is how we actually experience the world is, is you look at a tree and you think about, I'm looking at a tree. Um, and sure, it would be possible to say, well, let's pretend there was no tree. And let's pretend there was no me, and all that there would be left is just knowing, just thinking about thinking. But that's not actually where we start. We don't start by thinking about thinking. We start by thinking about things. 
uh, and by extrapolation or by abstraction, we can move to a place where we're thinking about thinking. But for the normal experience of human life, we think about things. And we have thoughts about things because things come to us through our senses. And so um, Wilhelmsen's critique is, first of all, that this is artificial. Well, first of all, that hyperbolic doubt is too high a, a standard of, of certainty. Secondly, that this necessitates um, a distinction between mind and body uh, that is Platonic and leads to all the problems that Plato had. And um, thirdly, this is not how we actually experience the world. How we actually experience the world is that we have thoughts about things. And so for Thomism, on page 31 of Wilhelmsen, man knows there are things because he senses them. Man knows there are things because he senses them. And this is, okay, well, backing up before that, um, the difference between critical thought following Descartes, and this could be called idealism, Cartesianism, or modern thought, it begins with thought is. Thought is, therefore, God, therefore, the world. Because I know there are thoughts, and I, as a thinking person, exist, um, we can start from there. Whereas non-critical or Thomistic or metaphysical realism, those are all synonyms for the same thing, begins with being is. And this goes all the way back to Aristotle as a different starting point for philosophy. Being is. There is being. There is existence. Existence is a thing. Or there is existence and there is non-existence. Things that exist, exist. And because they exist... I can know them. I can know some of them. And so for Thomas, man knows that there are things because he senses them. And all knowledge begins with our perception of things. That's how we begin to know about circles and squares and justice and goodness is through our perception of things and other people and other truths coming through our senses. Um, so this is a radical flip over and I've been wrapping my mind around this. I've one of my main like, wow moments from this class so far is how deeply Cartesian I actually was, how committed I was to um, the, basic, um, the basic assumptions of Descartes. Uh, I thought that I was pre-modern, that I, my philosophy came from before Descartes, um, but I realized that I'm just another variation of Cartesianism or modern thought because I would tend to begin with um, thoughts are therefore let's talk about the world and the whole reason that the matrix made sense to us as a society was that we're all Cartesians in one way or another whether we realize it or not we're all going to start with thinking um, to, to build our system uh, whereas uh, Thomas Aquinas begins at a completely different starting point uh, that um, the world is. The world is true. The world is, is stable. Uh, and we need to start our knowledge from the world. Um, so the thing we're going to have to talk about pretty soon for, for Thomas Aquinas is how do, what do we do with false sense perception? What do we do if, um, with Descartes' critique that 
um, my senses can be can mis mislead me, um, and all my senses could be co-opted by an evil genius. Um, in that case, nothing I know could be 100% for sure. So we'll talk about that in the next, um, well, in future podcasts. Um, but just to uh, wrap it up and clarify, for Thomas Aquinas, um, well, this book here by Wilhelms, and the title is, is, um, is uh, was carefully chosen, as, as titles of philosophy books usually are. It says, Man's Knowledge of Reality. Man's Knowledge of Reality. So for Thomas Aquinas, a man, um, and I'm sorry uh, for, um, you know, it was written in the 60s. I guess today you, you might say more like a human, human, a human's knowledge of reality because you don't want to be gender exclusive. Um, but uh, Wilhelmsen said man's knowledge of reality. And for Wilhelmsen, man or a human is... Um, a combination of sense perception and the soul. It's a body and soul together. That as a body and soul together, we perceive the world. We perceive the world, we understand it. We understand the world and we perceive it. These two go together. And as these two go together, we can experience the world and understand the world that actually exists. Because being is, the world exists. So we're going to talk about that in future podcasts. Um, but I think that about does it for Descartes. Of course, there's so much more that can be said. Um, but uh, we're going to sign off right there. Have a good day.